0: Hello, Convention of States podcast listeners! This is our weekly podcast featuring historic legacy content from our audio archives. We hope you are educated and inspired by this week's episode. In this 2022 speech, Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler gives a talk at a Patriot Academy event in Texas wherein he shares a first-hand account of his experience at the little-known monument to the forefathers. All right, so we're going to start with something which I think is a real treat, which actually Rick introduced me to. A lot of you know it, and it is the Monument to the Forefathers. How many of you are familiar with the Monument to the Forefathers? So pretty much the majority of people in the room. If you're not, don't feel bad. I think this is the most important monument in the United States of America that nobody knows about. About two years ago, I was in Plymouth, Massachusetts, and I was meeting a bunch of our grassroots activists there. And we're holding a, a grassroots rally grassroots meeting there and so i'd never been to plymouth and so of course i went to plymouth rock how many of you have been to plymouth rock pretty disappointing huh yeah it's a rock in the hole in the ground it's i was really disappointed and i went there by myself before i met with my grassroots and i thought okay well that's plymouth massachusetts i guess and then i met the team at a pizza joint and we were sitting around having pizza and talking politics and talking convention of states and they said man, we have a special treat for you after this. We're gonna take you to the Monument to the Forefathers. I'd never heard of it. And to get to the Monument to the Forefathers, you drive through a neighborhood, just a residential neighborhood. You have no, it's not like going into a national park or something, it's literally just a residential neighborhood and you go up a driveway and you come to a clearing in the forest and this monument is standing there. And it's stunning. It's 81 feet tall, the largest freestanding granite monument in the United States of America, and it is spectacularly beautiful. And I literally, it took my breath away. And so we got out of the car, it was a little bit rainy day, overcast, we had umbrellas, and we had somebody who lived in Plymouth that was there that knew the monument well and gave us a tour of the monument. Now imagine, to give you the scale, literally if you're standing next to this thing, you're gonna be about this tall, literally down at the first level of stone. So this thing is gigantic. And just the fact that I didn't know it was there and it was this beautiful, massive monument was kind of blowing my mind. And as I was given the tour of this monument, it, it was so clear to me that this is what Kirk Cameron calls the, the touchstone. This is the foundation of the American system of governance. It's contained in this monument. And what that means is if we drift away, if we forget where we came from, if we forget the country's foundations, we can go here. You can look at this model. You can look at the ones on your table. You can study it, and you can know how our government was intended to be. The monument was built uh, in the 1860s, really stopped during the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln was one of the original donors to the building of this monument, and it was to the pilgrims. Because the pilgrims came over, and in mind, and they had been trained, was a certain system of governance, and it was the governance given to the Hebrews, to the Israelites, by God. It's really extraordinary, right? We're not a Judeo-Christian country, right? Except for this is the system that the pilgrims brought over with them. So I'm going to just briefly kind of run through this. If you want to know the whole story, you can get the movie Monumental from Kirk Cameron. tells the whole story beautifully. I can't do it the justice that Kirk does, but I've studied under him because I think it's so cool. So I'm going to start with this. On top of this monument, what you see is a statue called Faith. And the most important thing about Faith is that she is pointing to the heavens, because everything begins with faith and our faith in God. We can't have a system of governance without faith in God. If you look in her hand, this is a Bible. Importantly, it's the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible, if you don't know, is the first study Bible, literally, is the first Bible with commentary, would have the verses numbered, so this is how they knew how to study the Bible. Really incredibly, four figures around it quickly, in the back here, not facing you guys, is law. Interestingly, law is directly under the Geneva Bible, right? And the the guy who's doing the law, he's got the laws in his hand. All just and righteous laws come from where? From the Bible and from God. And that's why law sits underneath the Bible. Right here, what we have is morality. Morality is a female because generally speaking, morality in our society was intended to be passed from the mother through to the children. And so what she has in her hand is she has the Ten Commandments, and the scriptures, the New Testament. Why? Because the whole thing matters, right? It's not one or the other, it's both. And she's there to teach that to the children. Over on this side, we have education. Again, a female figure intended to pass education on to the children and quickly moving on. So I'm not gonna do all the detail. This is Justice, he's my favorite figure. I like to lift weights, he's pretty ripped. I wanna look like this guy. He's wearing the full armor of God. He's got a sword in his arm. You'll notice that the sword is sheathed because it's a time of peace for them. They have escaped tyranny. They've come to the new world. Over his shoulder is is the pelt of a lion. There's a lion's claw over here. You can see the head hanging down here. That's intended to represent the United Kingdom, the British Empire that had held them under tyranny. And he has vanquished the tyrants. You'll see he's vigilant. His eyes look forward because he's protecting everything else. It takes a vigilant, what we call justice man, to protect all the other elements of this. It's in honor to the Mayflower. What you'll see is you've got pieces all around on each corner that represent moments in the pilgrim's history. It's incredible. I'm not doing it justice. I'm just giving you an overview. But if you want to understand in granite, permanently the structure of American governance that makes this country so extraordinary, that is a gift from God brought over by the pilgrims, then you need to understand the monument to the forefathers. Again, you have them on your table, so feel free to examine those. Get the materials from Kirk Cameron, kirkcameron.com. You can actually buy these monuments. You can buy a booklet about it. You can buy the video. To me, I've told this story hundreds of times. I actually take mine out and travel with it. I've got the big one just like this. To me, that gives me my roots as an American. I mean, it's pre-America, but this, these are our roots as Amer- It's not the 1619 Project, in case you're wondering. <laughs> this is really where it comes from. You know, when I, when I came into this room tonight, it's an it's a overwhelming emotional experience. And I haven't, I haven't been through what you've been through. I haven't been to Patriot Academy. I haven't sat there on the floor with you, but to walk in this room, the first thing that I felt was, I felt last year. And the first banquet that I've been to for y'all was last year. Last year was extraordinary. And it was extraordinary, they're all extraordinary, but last year Patriot Academy was canceled. It was literally canceled. It was over, it was done, it was not gonna happen. And what I saw in this room was one of the most extraordinary things I'd ever seen, which is the students said no. (laughs) Not not Rick, not Nathan, the students. How cool is that? So last year's banquet was the uncancelled banquet. Really so I sat here in this room last year and I thought, you know, I don't know adults that would do this. It wasn't, like I said, it wasn't Rick. I wouldn't have done that if I got the call and I was told it was canceled, be kind of like, all right, well, I'm disappointed, but we're gonna have to do it next year. And the students scrambled and they made it happen. And there were folks who helped and families who jumped in, but it was so extraordinary because what you saw in that is the root of the American system of governance. What you saw was self-governance. And this is a fundamental thing in America is the idea of self-governance. This is one of the things that sets America apart from everybody else. A lot of folks in this room traveled all over the world. You've been to countries in South America, Central America, Asia, Europe, all over the the planet. The one facet of our system of governance that you'll never find anywhere else is this idea of self-governance. You know, if you're an American, and I've done this, and you're, you're in Japan, and you walk into a restaurant, you got a group of people with you, and let's say you got eight people with you and you see a couple of tables sitting next to each other and there's four seats around each table. If you're an American, you'll walk in and you'll do what they call the ugly American thing and you'll push those tables together and you'll make an eight top table for you and your friends, right? If you're in Japan, you just freak out the entire restaurant. What are you doing? You have to ask the boss. I mean, you can't do that on your own. You know, you, you don't have that authority. America's like, what? We needed eight seats at a table. We are the original DIY nation. What do you mean you can't go to a new continent and build a country? Of course we can, right? There are Home Depots over there, right? But this is what we've always done as a country. It's pretty extraordinary. If you think about the history of America, people come across an ocean to an unknown land. They carve first colonies, big cities, ultimately thriving in industries out of nothing out of the wilderness, and they do it themselves. When they come here, they don't have a system of governance in place, benign neglect from the crown, they're thousands of miles across an ocean. This is so fascinating to me, how this country starts out of this idea that they have to do it themselves. I know Rick has told this story, I tell this story all over the country, my favorite patriot out of the American Revolution, you won't find a cigar named after him. You won't find any books written about him. You won't find any shows or movies made about him. His name's Captain Levi Preston. I love Levi Preston so much my dog's name is Levi Preston. (laughs) The reason I love Levi Preston so much is he was just a regular guy. And we know his story because Mellon Chamberlain, a young historian, was traveling across the country in 1843 and he was trying to collect the last remaining stories of the living Minutemen. Think about it, 1843, those guys were old. Right, we're talking late 80s, early 90s. Look, We all know people that old now. Back then, that's Methuselah old. It was really rare. If you came into a town and you said, do you have anybody in their late 80s, early 90s? Everybody knew who that person was if you had somebody that old in town. And so Mellon Chamberlain is traveling the country. He goes into North Carolina and he happens across Captain Levi Preston. Preston was in the Continental Army. He was there when the shot was fired that was heard around the world. But he wasn't really a soldier. He was a farmer. He had a family. He was about 23 years old at the time of the war. But when it was time, when the call came, he grabbed his musket and he went out to the field of battle. And Chamberlain wanted to know why he fought. It was the key. He was trying to figure out why did they fight. I often wonder that. If you think about the context of the American Revolution, imagine how they fought and what they fought against that the fight that they were fighting was against the greatest military force ever assembled in the history of the world. The best fed, the most well-armed, the most well-trained, the most motivated, and they were farmers and merchants and just regular people. To put it in context, it's like if I suggested you tonight, in downtown Austin, there's a marine brigade coming in tonight. Y'all go home and get your firearms and we're going to have a war. It's crazy. It's important we remember the context in which these men and these families stood. It's a very difficult situation. So Mellon Chamberlain wants to understand why. And he asks a series of questions of Levi Preston. First, he asks him, maybe you went out to fight that day because of the Stamp Act. You're really frustrated having to buy the stamps, put them on your documents, really just a tax. Preston says, stamps? Governor Bernard locked those in the armory. I didn't buy any stamps. So it wasn't the Stamp Act. He said, well, maybe it was the tax on tea. You were frustrated by the heavy British tax on tea. He said, son, I was a farmer. We didn't drink any tea. We drank coffee. Boys dumped it in the harbor. That was pretty good. So it's not the Stamp Act. It's not the tea tax. He said, maybe you were reading the great revolutionary writers, the the inspiring writers of the time. Maybe you're reading Burke and Thomas Paine, Common Sense. And he says, those men you speak of, I don't know those names. We read the Bible, Psalms. The Almanac, but those men you speak of, I've not heard of them. It's crazy. Now, all the things that I learned personally that caused the American Revolution were all the things that Mellon Chamberlain was asking. You gotta forgive me, I went to public school in Los Angeles, but still, (laughs) that's what I learned. So he goes big and he says, well, maybe it was just the heavy hand of British tyranny and you were just sick and tired of British tyranny. And he said, never felt a whit of it. No taxes, no stamps. No British tyranny, no great writers, inspiring him to the field of battle. So Chamberlain said, what was it that drove you out that day? What, what did you intend by going out to the field of battle? Preston says, intend? Son, when we went out to fight the Redcoats them that, that day, we meant only one thing. We had always governed ourselves. We always intended to. And them Redcoats intended that we shouldn't. I think that's really important. See, that's the foundation of the American Revolution. That's the American spirit. That's what's in our hearts. If you live here, if you love America, that is in your DNA. I don't mean it's born in your DNA. I mean, it's adopted in your DNA. Maybe you're like John Adams, who I met today, and it goes back in your real DNA. For most of us, that's just, we got that in our hearts, in our souls from living in the United States of America. And what we know today If you think about that story is there are people in Washington DC and I would say the vast majority of them, they don't think we should govern ourselves. They don't believe that you're capable of governing yourselves. The self appointed ruling elite in the United States of America today believes that they are your superiors, that you are their inferiors, that they have a right to rule over you and that you will appropriately take a knee. Does that sound familiar to you? You know, one of the extraordinary things also about the American Revolution, if you read the pamphleteers, and if you really want to understand what people are thinking, read the pamphleteers. And one of the phrases you will hear over and over in the pamphleteers in England who were pro-American independence and in the colonies from the people who are fighting for independence is this line or something very similar. The British system of governance is the finest system ever instituted among men for the preservation of liberty. Does that sound like people who were fomenting a revolution? It sounds like people who love their government, who believe in their system of government. Remember, they were members of the highest form of civilization ever to exist. They were proud of British theater and British music and British culture and the British system and history of governance. What you'll find in those pamphlets shortly thereafter is another line though. And this line says this, it says, unfortunately, All of the branches of our government are now conspiring together against the people. Does that sound familiar? See, because the fight that we're in today is not a fight because we don't believe in our system of governance. It's not a fight because we don't love our system of governance. I would say unequivocally, we live in the finest system of governance ever instituted by man for the preservation of liberty. It's just that All three branches of government are conspiring against the citizens at this point so that's the fight we're in it's important that you understand that it's the same fight that we've always fought in this country how many people think the country is incredibly divided right now raise your hand if you think we live in very divided times all right here's an interesting fact so we live in divided times people hate each other you watch TV it's really frustrating right It's always been this way in America. It's always been this way. We watch TV, we think it's never been like this. People, the left hates the right, the right hates the left, it's just so terrible. And people ask me, well, what do I think of the state of the country right now? And I think, it's awesome. I love where the country's at right now. And I know that seems weird, so let me explain why. Let's do a quick trip through history, through American history. If you go back pre-revolution, and you were to stand in the colonies and you were talk to people about people in other colonies. Primarily what they would say is, those people are blasphemers. The Pennsylvania Quakers are crazy, right? And it was mostly Christian sectarianism. Rhode Island is rogue. We don't even know what those people are thinking. And they didn't like each other. They lived in colony. They hardly traveled. They were closer to their home countries than they were the other colonies. And yet they joined arms and they fought against the king. Why did they do that? because it was an existential threat. I want you to remember that there's a through line in our history of existential threat. So they get together, they fight against the king, and they're victorious. For those of you who are veterans and you've actually been on the field of battle, you know something special happens when you're out there. When you're in a fight with other people, you a political fight with other people, there are bonds, you become band of brothers, you've heard that phrase. And so after the American Revolution, what happened was the colonies were completely united. They all loved each other so much that they got together and they formed the Articles of Confederation. Did they love each other? They hated each other, literally. A form of government that was so weak, and it said, I don't like you, I don't trust you, there's no way I'm letting you tell my colony what to do or my state what to do. I'm keeping all the rights in my own state. In fact, we're gonna give zero rights to the federal government. It didn't work, right? because they didn't trust each other, because they didn't like each other, they formed a government that didn't work. They had to come back. So 1787, they come back together, they get into convention, it's an extraordinary event, you know the history, they got along so well, they drank ale together, it was like a big party for 90 days. Nobody wanted to go home because they loved each other so much. They didn't like each other. They made all kinds of accusations against each other. There were personal rivalries. It was north versus south, slave versus non-slave, big state versus small state, commercial interests versus each other. The rancor was incredible. It was so bad three times they thought it was gonna be over and they were gonna have to go home. And in the end, they formed a government. And I think what's magic about this is they created a form of government intended specifically and forged out of by and between people who don't like each other. Federalism is a government for people who can't get along. But in 1787, look, there are threats. The, the England is still a threat to the colonies or, and to the, to the nascent nation, right? Spain is actually a threat. France, our erstwhile ally, would be happy to take over the states and make it part of France. So there are existential threats and they recognize that we have to do some limited stuff together, just enough to keep the country together, just enough to protect the country, just enough to keep the overseas threats at bay if we're going to have a nation. Federalism, the best system of government ever organized among men for the preservation of liberty. So immediately after 1787, they go out, it takes a couple years, we get the Constitution ratified, and then, thank God, everybody loves each other. (laughs) It's total peace across the nation, everybody likes each other, and it lasts for a really long time. In fact, they love each other so much that in the 1860s, we get a civil war. Literally, 700,000 injured or killed. Brother against brother, state against state, the nation is divided, and ultimately out of that, we force a union on half of a nation. That's how much we love each other. Now, the good news is immediately after the Civil War, everybody loves each other. (laughs) Are you getting a theme here? There's a lot more history in here. And I wanna jump though, I wanna jump forward to something extraordinary that happens in American history in the 1940s because I actually think we get unity in the country. We get World War II, and it is shared sacrifice all over the country. Everybody knows people who go off to war, families. Almost everybody loses people in the war. There's recycling going on. There's saving bonds being bought. Women are in the workforce in a way they have never have been before. It is a shared experience nationally. And so there's some unity that comes out of that. We prevail, obviously, in World War II against untold foes, unbelievable, miraculous. I think God intervenes once again in the nation's history and we are united. Out of the 1940s, you move into the 50s and we have the American dream. This is when we know about buying a house and a picket fence, the kids in the yard and everybody's aspiring to that and the country is unified. But I want you to have a visual because the country really is more like the Liberty Bell. Everybody knows what the Liberty Bell looks like, big crack in it, still beautiful, but there's a big crack in that. And that crack's always been in our country. Think of that as the schisms, the places we don't like each other, the regional differences. But in the 1940s, there's a veneer laid over that, a very thin layer over that because we're united. Move into the 1950s and you start to get national television, NBC, ABC, CBS. We start to build a national culture for the first time. Actually, you can watch the same TV show in Mississippi and New York, Leave it to Beaver, Father Knows Best. If you're gray hair in this audience, you might remember those shows. So we start to watch the same culture. And by the way, on the networks, you start to see the same products and we can buy the same products. Borax soap, Lucky Strike cigarettes, national brands come to the fore. It's pretty incredible. This is a new transformational thing and the veneer grows a little bit thicker. Still the crack underneath, but the veneer grows thicker. You get into the 60s, you get franchising, Literally now you can drive from Mississippi to New York, you can eat in the same restaurants, you can stay in the same hotels, you can buy your gas at the same gas stations, all the while smoking your Lucky Strike cigarettes. So it feels like we're becoming one unified country and the veneer gets a little bit thicker. Something else starts to happen in the 1960s Now, underneath that veneer, there is social unrest. We have the civil rights movement, We have in the streets people, half-naked people painted in psychedelic colors, listening to music that I still love, doing a lot of drugs. It's crazy times in the country in the 1960s, and our society is splitting apart underneath that veneer. You get Major League Baseball, National Football, NBA, if you're a weird guy like me, NHL. You start watching sports together, the veneer grows a little bit thicker. We're all the same. In the 1970s, you have the heyday of big government in Washington, D.C., in America. In the 1970s, you get this idea of the economy of scale. We should do everything in Washington, D.C. It's it's economic, it's, we're all the same, it's the same culture, we're watching the same sports, we're buying the same stuff, we're watching the same television, we're all the same, so do it from D.C. You know, in the 1970s, you have Richard Nixon gives us the EPA and the Department of Education, or Department of Energy, I'm sorry. Incredible, a, a Republican president. I was just a kid when that happened, but that's nobody fought back against the expansion of the federal government in the 1970s. But that schism is still growing. And we jump forward to today, and here's the world that we live in today. If you're me, if you're a 60-year-old guy, or like most of us in this room, we look out across what's going on in America and we say this. Those people over there believe in killing nine-month-old babies in the womb and maybe when they come out of the womb. That's not a difference. That's evil. Those people believe that men are women, women are men, There are 57 genders. Nobody's actually a gender. And you should teach my kids all that stuff. That's not just a difference. That's evil, right? They believe that the state should do everything and we should be beholden to the state and not the other way around. That's not just a difference. That's evil. Okay. So that's what we think. On the other side, if they were to stand outside this room and listen to us, here's what they would think. Those people in there are Nazis, like actual Nazis. They're racist, they're homophobes, they're biggest, they're misogynists, they're Islamophobes. Those people are evil. And so both of us are saying, I don't really want to live in a country with those people anymore. I travel a lot around the country and I hear something that terrifies me. I hear people on our side say... All What we need is a good civil war. What we need is, we're just going to have to split the country apart. Yeah, you know, we need secession. I hear this a lot. In Texas, there's a full-blown secession movement going on. By the way, a full-blown secession movement going on in California during the Trump era. Right? So people are talking about splitting the country apart. For those of you in this room that have seen war, civil war, real wars, been overseas, anybody who says that, I don't think they understand what they're saying. You wanna know what war looks like in America? Go look at the video from Ukraine right now. Because what you'll see is dead babies in the streets. Literally, grandmothers weeping over their families dead in the streets, their apartment buildings knocked down, I mean, it's just incredible stuff. Famine, disease, that's not a solution for the problems that us. It is one of the potential paths in the future. I can't say what the path will be. Plenty of people think that's the right solution. I think that's crazy. And I think we, you as patriots, as statesmen and stateswomen have an obligation to try to do anything we possibly can that is moral and righteous and just to avoid that path. Do you guys agree with that? Look, this is gonna be hard for you guys. It's harder for the younger people. You guys are gonna come up in the midst of this. So if it's not secession, if it's not revolution, if it's not civil war, then what's the solution? I didn't intend to have this work out this way in my lifetime. When I started Convention of States, I just thought, look, we need to take the power away from the federal government and give it back to the people. That made sense to me. Elections, though we need to be in them, we need to fight in them, we need to elect the best people they can, they haven't been working that well for us, even with the best of them. Nathan, you said that Reagan was your first vote. My first vote, we must be exactly the same age. That was my first vote too. I never thought I would live in a time when Marxists would openly be in Washington DC. When the ideas and the ideals and the ideology of Marxism will be throughout all of our institutions. We watched the Berlin Wall fall and we thought that's it, it's over, that fight is over, but history repeats itself and bad ideas never go away. So if it's not revolution, if it's not civil war, if that's not the solution, if politics as usual are not the solution, there's got to be something. And the founders left it for us. Young people call these Easter eggs in video games. They left us an Easter egg in the Constitution. They said if it ever gets bad enough, man, this is it. You have the power to restrain the federal government. You have the power to engage in that fight. You have the power to do it. You can call a convention, you can propose amendments, and you can restrain federal tyranny. This is what they intended for us. I do hear occasionally from folks on the right, probably some people in this room, they'll say, you know what, it's so scary. Like calling a convention, I mean, you don't know what could happen. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna be a little strong here, and I apologize because I consider you all friends and family, There were people who said that at the time of the American Revolution too. It's too scary. We can't face the British, biggest fighting force, best army in the history of the world. How could we possibly do that? We don't know what will happen. I already heard the quote up here tonight, Quincy, John Quincy Adams, right? Duty is ours, the results belong to God. This is our duty. The founders gave us this. This is our obligation because it frankly, We're headed this way, the country's coming apart, and the question is, are we gonna do it peacefully and return to federalism, which is what calling a convention is all about, or are we gonna let the country crumble? Now I'm gonna ask for your forgiveness, because those of you in this room that are young are inheriting a world that is very difficult. It's a great time to be alive, it's fantastic, but I want you to forgive. I'm gonna ask, plead for the forgiveness for our generation. Because the older men and women, the teachers, the poets, the musicians, the politicians of our generation have forgotten. We have forgotten to look to the wisdom of the past. We have forgotten to read the great books. We have forgotten to invoke the great names from our history and to know and to memorize and to honor those stories. We, as a couple of generations, have forgotten. And so that's the bad news. And I apologize for my generation. There are plenty of us in this room. We know the books. We've read the books. We've listened to the music. We've fought the fight, but certainly not enough of us. And certainly not at the institutional level. But I'm going to leave you with the good news. The good news is every one of those people that we have forgotten as a society exists in the books, in the music in the literature, in the great speeches, in the philosophy that you all have access to today. It's an incredible time to be alive. All knowledge in human history is in the phone that you carry around in your pocket. It's pretty extraordinary. And the question for you and the challenge for you, I think I know the answer for most of you, is will you stand and will you fight? And I will guarantee you one thing all of us in the room who have some gray hair who are older who've been around a while will stand and fight with you and this is how seriously I take that I started with this the idea that we pledge our lives our fortunes and our sacred honor one of the most incredible things I saw in the room tonight is the sense of family of camaraderie of how much you love each other because of your shared experience, because of learning this stuff together, because of being in the fight together. So I would ask that you do this. Every night, literally, before I go to bed, I look in the mirror and I pledge my life and my fortune and my sacred honor. For me, I pledge it to all the grassroots people in this country that are in the fight. Everybody who is in this room, to my friends, to the people that I know, to the people who I've hugged and shaked their hands and looked in their eyes, to many, many thousands more who I've never met. And here's what I mean by that, and this is why I take that so seriously. When I say to you what I'll say to you tonight, I personally pledge my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor to you. And you, you especially, you, you, everybody in this room, what I mean by that sincerely, genuinely, is if you need me, if you were the person who called, I said, Rick, I need Mark. And Mark said, yeah, I'll get you in touch. I will come. I will do what I can. I make no promises about what I can do. I'm one guy. We're one organization. Limited amount of assets. But I will try. I will do everything in my power to help everybody in this room because you are committed to God and you are committed to saving America. And so I am committed to you. So before you go to bed tonight, I would ask you this. Look in the mirror and ask yourself if you're willing to do that. To all the people in this room, to all the experiences that you've had together, to everybody in this room, to all the patriots you know in the fight, are you willing to give that? It's not easy. Take that seriously. People will call on you and it won't be easy. I pledge my life, my fortune, and my sacred honor to you, and I appreciate you. And it's an incredible honor to be here tonight, Rick, Kara, Green Family, Patriot Academy. I love you guys. God bless you. To learn more, visit conventionofstates.com/pod.